0: Hello, and welcome to a very exciting episode of Think Fit, Be Fit podcast. My name is Jennifer Schwartz. I am the hostess and creator of this podcast, where we believe that potent exercise comes from effective thinking. Today's episode features a true critical thinker in fitness, and the entire exercise industry. So if you came here to learn about a celebrity trainer (laughs) showing off their ability to help someone get six-pack abs, you are in the wrong place. This podcast episode and this podcast in general is for people invested in their critical thought process about how they use information for their body and their health. Now, this episode has implications for trainers, coaches, movement coaches, meaning dance teachers, um, I would call yoga instructors, a movement coach. It has implications for even teachers and for people who are self-leading in their fitness journey. So someone who does want to be intellectual about their fitness process. This episode has implications for the whole gamut of listeners. So this guest, Dr. Paul Juris. He is a noted kinesiologist specializing in education, motor skill development, sports performance enhancement, rehabilitation, and intuitive program development. He also has provided extensive sports development, rehabilitation, and educational consulting for organizations, including the NBA, the NHL, USTA, Tennis, um, US Cycling Federation, the PGA, US Equestrian Team. Paul was previously the Vice President of Science and Education at PGA Kinematics Lab, which is... Golf Biomechanics and Golf Swing Efficiency Lab attached to the PGA. He served as director of the Equinox Fitness Training Institute, which is the trainer education arm of Equinox, a leader in personal training in the business side of this, and was the director... I want to say, no, so chief science officer at Cybex for nine plus years. He's also a academic, meaning he's a teacher and at, at multiple universities. And I think that sums it up. <laughs> but the, the, the most attractive part about All of that stuff that I just said is the critical thinking piece. And I got started with this idea about dismantling the dogma of core exercise and why it's so emphasized in all of the fitness and rehab industry that core strength is important. I wanted to poke holes in this, and he already has on an academic level. I'm doing it in this kind of abstract and um, <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, it's different than the academic way that he did it. But there's these four lectures, sorry, it's one lecture into four parts when from when he was at the Cybex Institute and I've attached them in the show notes. So I watched these lectures and I have to say that's so important that we have A conversation around us being told that the core is everything because it's it it we don't know and the the research is very clear that we don't know and this is dangerous. So while I as a soccer fitness coach understand that muscles around the spine should be strong. There's no research to really back me up on that being important for sports performance. And I think we all in the industry need to acknowledge that. And that's where we are right now. So if you want that experience with those lectures, they are in the show notes on YouTube and they're awesome. I also have some of the research that I will gladly share. You'll have to check the show notes or directly contact moi. And here are some of the things that are brought up in this particular episode. So he does most of the talking, thank God. Um, Because like Honestly, after this conversation, I didn't feel like we should be in the same room. But that's, you know, just my critic talking. And I was psyched to go on a adventure of learning and questioning my assumptions. So that's the impact I want this to have on you guys. Um, So we talk about EMG studies. We talk about, we talk, he talks. (laughs) EMG studies, pseudoscience, functional movement core stability and athletic performance. And one of my favorite things, which was what makes sense for measuring performance and outcomes? So what doesn't make sense? I'll warm you up real quick. Clinging on to a fixation of the core. It's more religion than it is science. Another thing to think about is the logic of observational data rather than minute detail management. Um, EMG studies might not be very helpful at all, and they really contribute to um, this problem that we're having. Another thing to warm you up and think about is a thought experiment on, you know, what you bought into about core exercise is it a gimmick and so if you've heard things like draw in your core and promises that injury prevention um, and core strength are correlated then you might have been um sold a lie essentially. So I would challenge us all listeners, trainers, coaches, exercise lovers to just think of these things and maybe where they draw their, where they had drawn their conclusions from, or were you just blindly listening? My intention again, for this is to help you be an independent thinker, not a follower of gurus. So Without further to do, please welcome Dr. Paul Juris to the podcast and please get in touch if you have any questions or would love to get into the research and nerd chat with me about that at on Instagram at impact underscore your underscore fitness, or you can join the newsletter because I share all these deep thoughts about exercise um, once a week to every 10 days. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so we can continue on this wonderful learning journey and bringing high quality fitness to you. Enjoy. Enjoy. And then I uh, spent a good amount of time um, looking into the stuff we talked about initially about the core and um, measuring and what um, the lack of being able to measure. And I, um, you know, I came to this, I guess, conclusion that the fitness industry um, is, you know, just really poorly educated and that we're doing more the certifications and I haven't participated in a lot of these or maybe just one or two where the certifications just seem to be like, do the workout and then copy what I do, a choreography Mm -hmm. training. So, Um, I'd love to start this conversation with, of course, like your introduction and, um, what, uh, you know, what the, I guess the, the direction of education, maybe even specifically about the core and why we might be so, I don't know, we're just so pre pre so focused on it as an industry. And I'm really not sure why anymore, because it just doesn't make any sense when I look, take a step back. So I don't know if that's too much. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm happy to do that. You know, parenthetically, it's, I I think I mentioned to you that I had uh, done a presentation actually it turns out it was eight years ago. I didn't realize it was so long ago, but it was in New York and it's on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And um, I went back and looked at it and I was kind of chuckling while I was looking at it because. Even in the face of a significant amount of data and evidence um, and very clear information and very clear findings and results, people in that audience were clinging so tightly to their belief system, what they've been told, and I'm not going to say what they've been taught, I'm going to say what they've been told. They hang on to that so so tightly, and they just refuse to reassess that and to challenge the that thinking. Mm-hmm. That it becomes religion, and and really, to for a great many people that are working in the industry, it is a religion because it's a belief system. It's not necessarily evidence-based and even things that are evidence-based. I mean, there's a lot of pseudoscience out there Mm -hmm. and pseudoscience is very dangerous because pseudoscience is, is not based on learning things. Pseudoscience is based on proving things. And when you set out to prove something you do, and then you get complacent because you're so happy that you proved what you wanted to prove. That you just accept it as fact, and the reality is, you stop growing, you you stop learning, you stop adapting, you stop evolving, because you just proved what you wanted to prove. Like, okay, it works. So, it's it's a it's a weird place that we're in, and you know, I don't know how it's going to change. I've spent my entire career trying to change it, you know, and here I am, I'm in, in my sixties and. I'm still trying to change it. So what have I accomplished? (laughs) I have no idea.
0: Um, What? uh, That's, yeah. uh, I'm just throwing my hands up. Um, And I mean, to me, it's like uh, a reflection on um, the education system of uh, American culture in general, like we're doers, we're not thinkers. And that's what we're taught. So can you uh, give me the quick... um, a uh, summary of where who you are, your career, and all that stuff. Okay, my name,
1: uh, Dr. Paul. Yeah, my name is Dr. Paul Juris. I am a kinesiologist. My doctorate is in motor learning, and I've had a very lengthy career. I've been in the fitness, sports, medicine, education sectors. Um, for over 35 years, I'm a research scientist, um, a teacher, and I've also had a lot of business experience, uh, worked with a variety of clubs, fitness clubs. Uh, I was also the chief science officer at Cybex for nine and a half years, worked in professional sports, and worked in medicine. So I've had sort of a, an interesting eclectic mix of experiences. Um, and here I am talking to you. Um,
0: what, uh, so I'm curious how you've led, you're able to lead students into exploration and thinking about the core, like with activities, um, Do you have some examples of, I don't know, doing that with either a group of trainers or students or clients?
1: So, you know, yeah. So mostly when I'm doing things like that, I'm doing it with trainers Mm -hmm. uh, who are hopefully interested in in learning about these kinds of things. And especially as it relates to the core, it, it seems like, there's this remarkable fixation on developing core stability, core function, core strength, core endurance. And the reason that I use all of those adjectives is because I don't think we've come up with some conclusive way of measuring what's going on there. Um, and so part of the problem with understanding anything is, you know, to truly understand something Uh, we have to be able to measure it and our ability to measure it is going to tell us what we can learn about it. Mm -hmm. As our instruments improve and as technology evolves and as things get more sophisticated, our ability to measure gets better. And then suddenly what you find out is what you thought you knew 10 years ago based on our tools of measurement 10 years ago, suddenly changed because you can measure things differently. So Mm-hmm. It's constantly evolving, but what, you know, there's other than getting students into a lab mm-hmm. and actually putting instrumentation on people in a, in a really sophisticated lab setting, for, I find the best way that you can experience and understand how these things work is by moving and trying to understand what you're doing while you're doing it. So, mm-hmm. you know, for example... I've had discussions with trainers around core and balance, mm-hmm. not muscular balance, like equilibrium. And I've had a lot of trainers say to me, your core is like the most important thing in maintaining balance. And I say, okay. So stand on one foot, maintain your balance, tighten your core, and see if you can hold that position. And I just nudge them at their shoulder and they fall right over. So. How well did the core help you maintain balance right there? Then I would say, okay, relax your core. Focus on keeping your weight distributed right over the middle of your foot. And I'm going to just make sure you're relaxed while you're doing it. And I'm going to nudge you again. And what happens is when I nudge them, their upper body gives a little bit. So it absorbs the force that I'm applying. And they're able to maintain their balance. Mm -hmm. So, in this particular instance, having a tight core didn't actually help them to maintain balance. It actually made it more difficult because their body was not reactive and responsive to the forces that were being applied to it. Mm -hmm. So, we think, we're told that you have to have this really tight center. But in some instances, having a tight center is a disadvantage as opposed to advantage. And so another example could be like doing a leap. So you're going to jump from one foot to the other foot. That's a leap. Mm -hmm. And you got to stick the landing. And you find that when people try to keep a very tight core while they're doing it, once again, their body loses the ability to make subtle adaptations to the forces that, are, and they're usually asymmetrical forces. The forces aren't always perfectly aligned. are mm-hmm. the, the way our foot lands, the way the foot moves. Mm-hmm. Once the forces get applied into the ground on landing, you have reactive components that are coming back and affecting all the joints in your body. And if you don't have the ability to subtly change position, then it becomes very difficult to perform the task. So the stiffer you are, the harder it gets. So there's, again, there's no advantage to trying to stiffen everything there. Mm-hmm. It's probably better to just let things relax.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, I, I, I think that, uh, golf swing, uh, example you talked her through made, that made a lot of sense to me for sure with, with that. Oh yeah. So
1: yeah. Stand over a golf ball, tighten up your core muscles <laughs> and then see if you can swim. Yeah, good luck.
0: Yeah. I, so I listened to those uh, lectures on, um, I guess it was pump one or and. Oh yeah, YouTube
1: pump one. Yeah,
0: yeah. So in that talk, there was a paper on measuring core stability and athletic performance with a medicine ball toss and the Sherman test. And mm-hmm. and then the. and then you know just looking at it it was it was just you walked away and you said okay so the the better the athlete the weaker the core according to this test and um I just thought that was so I don't know I think that's so useful to just ask more questions I'm very I was very curious after listening to that talk I, I, w- I don't know what direction do you go with that after um I don't know looking at that stuff or what what direction does that uh researcher go in with with that information after that or Yeah so the trainer do
1: it, It's an interest, it's an interesting question. I think to put a little context around it. Um there were a whole bunch of studies that I examined that were looking at correlations between some measure of core capacity and some performance variable. So, again, the core capacity part is interesting because some of the tests are ballistic, some of the tests are static, some of the tests are time-based, some of the tests are rep-based. So, in some regard, you have to look at what it is they were testing what were they measuring? And then how is that being correlated with some performance variable? So the performance variables could be vertical jump, could be sprinting time, uh, could be a T test right, or a five ten five 5 test. It could be squat strength, bench press strength. Uh, so a, a bunch of different things that they could try to correlate and understand what a correlation is. It's just looking at two measures and whether their change is similar or dissimilar. So does one measure change in the same way as another measure or do they change differently, right? So that's what a correlation is. It's not a cause and effect, it just looks at the relationship between these measures and whether they're similar or not. And what I found really interesting about all those studies that I looked at is that at best, the correlation, the best correlation that I could come up with between any measure of core function at all and some performance outcome was 0.5. And 0.5 is not a very strong correlation. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's in fact kind of low. I mean, if Mm -hmm. if I were to look for a correlation that said these things absolutely change in the same way, I would want to see a correlation of like 0.85, 0.9 and higher. And here we were seeing things that were like 0.5, which to me say, you know what, these things may not be really commonly related. There, There may be nothing to do with one another. And even more spartanly, I saw some correlations there that were negative, which means a negative (laughs) correlation means that one variable is changing in one direction and the other variable is changing in the opposite direction. So when you see a negative correlation with core and performance, what we were seeing is that as the core measures were improving, the performance measures were getting worse. So... (laughs) Yeah, it just just makes me scratch my head and say, what's really going on here? Now, is it that there's no relationship at all? Or is it that the measures themselves were not adequate for determining how this part of the body is related to these other performance things? You know, maybe the measures are just bad. Maybe we need a new measure. Mm. And so that's, you know, those are the kinds of questions that I have is, but the problem is, what it's really telling us is we really don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't know what this does, and so I think having a fixation around it is probably not a healthy thing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's 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 uh, it's gone. It's put us in the wrong direction as an industry. It
1: sounds like. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think you know everybody is so focused on developing that. Mm-hmm. Um. I think they start to lose sight of the other things. I had a conversation with a trainer once. It was a lecture that I was doing, and the trainer, you know, he basically said, Your arms aren't important. Your legs aren't important. Your arms definitely not important. The only thing that's important is your core. I said, Your arms are not important. They said, Yeah, absolutely. You just need good core strength. And I said, mm-hmm. Okay. I said, Let's, let's do a little, exercise here stand up and walk over to the door over there and he Mm -hmm. did and I said okay put your hands in your pockets and open the door (laughs) and I've been trying that (laughs) recently it's like go ahead now if the handle is a latch handle you could do it if the handle is a knob handle you could use your mouth or I mean I don't know how you're going to do it but without your hands Mm -hmm that it it makes it very difficult to do that. And so one of the things that I like to do as a kinesiologist is I try to understand how different parts of our body, how the the limb segments or the trunk or any part of our body is involved in the management of position and motion. Like what are the jobs? So for example, when I look at the legs, I see the legs as providing one of two functions, either body stability or body transport. That's what they do. So the function of the legs is either to stabilize your position when you're standing or even sitting or lying. Somehow you're going to use your legs for stability or to move you around in space. That's their job. Mm -hmm. So when I think of training the legs, I think of training them for one of those two functions. And they're very different. And the things like doing squats on physio balls, that's essentially training them for both functions simultaneously. And that's a really challenging thing for the nervous system. It's like, are you trying to stabilize this thing or are you trying to move it? Do one or the other, but trying to move it and stabilize it at the same time, that's weird. And mm. so you end up with a lot of spastic activity when people do that. It's mm-hmm.
0: yeah, sort miss- of stop,
1: start, stop, start, stop, start. Yeah. So as far as the core is concerned, so what is this thing doing? Well, it's helping to position your body. So it's helping to create a posture. And I want to distinguish between posture and alignment. Because they're not the same thing, posture is a position we assume in space that allows us to move effectively. Alignment is getting your ear over your shoulder, over your hip, over your knee. that's not what I'm talking about. So mm-hmm. a posture is just a position in space that allows mm-hmm. us to function from that position. Mm-hmm. So the trunk must the trunk itself is sort of a posture control function so that we can position our body in such a way, so that we can use our legs and our arms effectively to accomplish tasks. So that's the way I look at the trunk. Mm-hmm. And the arms are important for manipulating objects in our environment. So mm-hmm. if we want to open doors, we want to carry objects, we want to push objects, we want to pull objects. We, we do that with our arms. Our arms are critically important to being able to manipulate our space. So I don't look at any part of the body as being more important than another. The core is no more important than any other part of the body that is operating in a functional task. It's just a part of a system that has to work in order to position ourselves, maintain equilibrium, apply force, um, and achieve a goal. They're mm-hmm. all integrated pieces, but no one is more important than anything else.
0: Mm. And I'm guessing n- no one uh, singular definition is exist for the core.
1: Unless I'm, unless I'm I, yeah. I don't see how it can. I mean, yeah. you know if if our if our job is to bend over and maintain a a sense of balance and a stable position while we're manipulating objects on the ground in front of us, then some measure of capacity for the core would be how long can I hold uh, a trunk extension position? Mm-hmm. So it could be an endurance test, right? Mm-hmm. But if, if I'm doing, if I'm a tennis player, and I'm looking at the, or golfers, for example, a golfer would be a good example of this. And I'm looking at club head velocity. Then my measure of core function has to be rate of rotation. And not only peak velocity of rotation, I have to look at how effectively I decelerate on the after impact. So mm. this is more of a dynamic measure of core function that I have to create. So the, the, the reality of it is, as we look at these different tasks, skills, sports, uh, sports skills or whatever, the, the measures that we use for the core have to be realistic and reasonable given the nature of the task. So if I'm looking at a dynamic task, then I have to have a dynamic measure. If I'm looking at a static task, then I have to have a static measure, mm. but to have to do a static measure and think that it applies to a dynamic task, yeah. I, I think there's a there's a, a lapse in thinking there because I don't see the relationship between those
0: things. So, like a plank and making a relationship with a uh, squat, uh, I don't know, like performance. So, like the, the yeah, meeting, like a vertical
1: like jump. Like, yeah. Right. So, yeah, can you do a plank and how long? Can you hold a plank for three minutes? Okay, great. Does that mean that you're able to jump higher? Your guess is as good as mine, but mm-hmm. you're, not, you're not measuring what's really happening. So if you think about a vertical jump, and dynamic trunk acceleration which is what's going to happen when you're doing a vertical jump and it's a sequential application of body segments that's how this works so Mm -hmm. you know you start by driving down into the ground through your legs right so you Mm -hmm. get ankle plantar flexion you get knee extension hip extension then you get trunk extension and every one of those segments accelerates And so you're looking at trunk acceleration at that point. That's a very, very dynamic, concentric, rapid concentric contraction of those muscles around the spine. How is that being measured when you're doing a plank? (laughs) The plank is isometric. Mm -hmm. It's a long duration thing. It happens over a long period of time. I mean, all of the characteristics of that plank are different from the characteristics of that trunk extension that occurs during the vertical jump. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I don't see how one can relate to the other. Mm-hmm. There's a, You know, there's a classic example of this in, in a bit, slightly different context. It's not really core, but there was a, a study that was published. Um, Kyle Kiesel did it. He was... Looking at the biomechanics of an overhead squat. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the overhead squat is something that's become in vogue right now for, for testing and measures. It's part of the FMS. Oh, sure. And sure. and so he broke down all of the joint torques that were occurring during an overhead squat. It was an interesting set. But what was more interesting to me is something that he didn't actually report on, but the data was there in his tables, but he didn't actually talk about it. And it's called the hip-to-knee moment ratio. What that really A moment is a, it's a moment of torque, so it's mm-hmm. a biomechanical measure. And the hip-to-knee moment ratio simply is looking at the moment at the hip and the moment at the knee and creating a ratio between the two. And if you look at things like vertical jumping, cutting, um, any dynamic sports movement, mm-hmm. that hip to knee moment ratio can be upwards of three to one. So typically you'll see one and a half to one, two to one, and up to three to one. So in other words, the hip, the, mm-hmm. the torque at the hip is three times greater than the torque at the knee. Mm-hmm. Now, that's very reasonable. It makes sense because in those very ballistic dynamic movements, you want the hip to be really the explosive component to to produce the most force and power. It's the biggest joint in the body. It's got the biggest musculature in the body. I mean, you're getting a lot of power out of the glutes Mm. and the hamstrings. I mean, all of that's coming out of the hip. So you would, it's very reasonable to accept that a hip-to-knee moment ratio of three to one is right. Mm -hmm. So then you look at the study that Kiesel did in the overhead squat, and the hip-to-knee moment ratio was 0.8. Well, 0.8 means -hmm. that the knee torque is actually higher than the hip torque. And so you have to ask yourself, Mm -hmm. how does that predict how I'm going to do in a highly ballistic dynamic environment when the hip to knee moment ratio is three to one. Mm -hmm. And the answer is it doesn't Mm -hmm. because if you look at all of the research that correlates overhead squat performance with things like running, jumping, (laughs) things like that, Mm -hmm. there's no correlation at all. Mm. It doesn't correlate. So that was a very long winded Mm -hmm. response to your question you know what are we measuring and how does it relate to what we're doing mm-hmm. and that's the million dollar question mm. if we really want to understand how things work we need to develop measures that relate in some way shape or form to the thing that we're performing otherwise we get really bad information
0: mm. yeah um that makes that that one makes me want to ask about you know, what could be measured? What does a lab setting allow? Um, What are the tools that could be favorable for measuring something like, I don't know, hip, you know, uh, like a hip to knee ratio or, uh, man, that, yeah, that puts me in a (laughs)
1: <laughs> well it it's a challenge because it's not something that lay people can do. It's not something that um, even fitness professionals can do outside of a well equipped laboratory. Mm-hmm. So when when I ran the Cybex Research Institute, mm-hmm. I mean, we had we had a Full complement of technology and equipment in our lab, so we had force plates we had mm. a, we had an infrared motion capture system, so camera based motion capture system, we also had an inertial motion capture system, which mm. are these devices that you put directly on the body, which measure motion directly. We had you know gas analysis systems so that we could look at energy expenditure. I mean, we had EMG so we could look at muscle activity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, were, we were able to look at almost anything that we wanted to. And most people don't have tools like that. But, no, yeah. you know, there are tools that we do have. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's some interesting technology that's starting to emerge that is video-based. Mm-hmm. That, you know, there are some systems out there that with a simple camera, with a simple video camera, mm-hmm. it will actually do a full body motion analysis
0: mm-hmm. that
1: um, can give you some very interesting information. So um, there are tools out there, but for the most part, it, it, I, I mean, unless you're really trying to research this kind of stuff, it doesn't necessarily give one any advantage to mm-hmm to have instrumentation. Mm-hmm. It's just what do we do when we go out and experience things and try things and how does it feel and how well are we doing? So it's really the outcome measures mm-hmm. that we need to be more concerned about as opposed to these you know, technical details. So I guess the example that I give is if you're interested in losing weight, the mm-hmm. best outcome measure that you can um, see is getting on a scale, Right. And Mm -hmm. um, that's your outcome measure as opposed Mm -hmm. to finding some technology that's telling you how many calories you're burning. Mm -hmm. That's really not telling you whether you're losing weight. Mm -hmm. So you just have to be logical in your approach. Mm Hmm.
0: Hmm, How about that? Um, (laughs) I yeah I mean I think you know when I work individually with people i'm I'm asking for their feedback but i finding something objective um, is i think it's fun and i i just i can't imagine not finding something you know simple that they can understand and that I can talk about and Help them it just pick apart a little bit. I, I just can't imagine not doing that in my own practice. Um, I've even found really fun ways to do it in this virtual space. I have people balance a, a yoga block on their foot while they're laying down like in, in hip flexion, <laughs> and just see if they can do it on both sides. and you know if not, Um, we talk about that and we talk about how that might impact their exercise of choice. And we just call it a day. And, you know, they have something to think about, they have something to work on and something to potentially learn. Um, But I am on the other side of that. I have had some really fun lab experience with uh, surface EMGs in a Pilates setting, and we were measuring this. Um, this we were using an exercise that's called the hundreds. Do, are, are you familiar with that? Um, um,
1: maybe if you describe it to me.
0: Okay, so it's um the it's a crunched flexion position while the person is lying down. They are, they have their chin tucked, they're in a flex position, their legs are in a tabletop uh, position, or they can change it. Uh, the legs can be, you know, straight at the knee, and um, and then the arms are undulating and moving back and forth, and the person's breathing. So the, the challenge of the exercise is to hold the flexion while the arms are moving. Um,
1: okay. So,
0: so it looks like a, a bunch of uh it's 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 a bre- it, there's a lot of breathing emphasized into it there's a lot of flexion and the and the the legs the hips are in flexion so you're in this you know holding position so it's um so is so, it like a
1: hollow body hold or is it more yes. with more hip flexion than a hollow body hold
0: um there's more hip flexion i think there's a lot of variations but the way that we were testing was um no more hip flexion than a hollow body hold. Yes. Okay. And, you know, it's, you know, everybody, it was, it was really funny because the the whole idea was, what do you feel? What is the person's, what's the perception of the feeling <laughs> that we're selling someone and what is um, actually going on? And um, our our rock star muscles, according to the EMG, were, were the uh, vastus lateralis. When we were supposed to be doing this like ab exercise, and we're doing Pilates, and not only that, we were thinking that the vastus lateralis even got to an anaerobic uh, threshold. So it was just like, oh, that's uh, you know what that exercise is selling. And what that exercise is advertised as is nothing like we saw on the EMG. So, um, you know, I just, I, I love that kind of stuff um, with the surface EMGs and whatnot. So no real question in there, but. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm I'm actually, I'm, I'm looking, I, I did look it up while you were describing it and I uh-huh. can see now what you're talking about. You know, the, The interesting thing is that the way your body responds to loads Mm -hmm. is it responds to the torques that are acting on Mm -hmm. the joints. So Mm -hmm. as any segment of your body is being accelerated by gravity um whether that segment is moving or not it's still subject to acceleration due to gravity right that's the law of falling bodies we all fall toward the ground at nine point eight meters per second squared so the in that particular case what's happening is just by doing a trunk flexion mm-hmm. uh the your core muscles are working to to maintain sort of a, a it's not even lumbar flexion. It's just basically lifting your head and shoulders off the ground. Mm. Um, so the amount of torque on your spine there is, is less mm. than the amount of torque acting on the hip joint because the leg is being accelerated toward the ground. And so your hip flexor muscles, in particular rectus femoris, probably if you were able to get an EMG electrode on that, mm-hmm. that would be lit up. Mm -hmm. as opposed to what's going on in your trunk. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what you discovered. And I think having instrumentation like that is very valuable because it allows you to get past the subjective sensation of what people feel. I'm always a little bit reluctant to get into what people feel Because if they have any predisposition towards thinking they know what an exercise is doing, naturally, they're going to feel it where they think they're supposed to feel it. Mm -hmm. But just because you feel it there doesn't mean that it's key, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't mean that that particular area of your body is working harder. It just means you're focused on it. So you feel it there. I find that to be less helpful than just getting people to understand what the goal of a movement is and mm-hmm. seeing if they accomplish it. If they can achieve the movement that they're looking to do, it doesn't really matter where they feel it. Mm-hmm. Just right. And that's where we, when we get into these discussions of queuing um, mm-hmm. and coaching, Mm -hmm. when we get people to kind of let go of the internal cues and focus more on the external Mm -hmm. components and the Mm -hmm. goal of the movement, they actually do better because they end up using the muscles they need to use and relax the muscles that they don't need to use. And that's really helpful when we're teaching skills.
0: Mm. Yeah. So an external cue, can you uh, expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, if um, let's say you're do, you're teaching someone to do a squat, and you you say, "Well, we want you to get your you know your glutes more active, so I want you to focus on contracting your glutes." All right. Well, that's an internal cue, as opposed to my saying, "Okay, from this pos- this lowered position, you're in this lowered squat position. I want you to focus on a point in space in f- slightly in front of you and up above you." And I want you to move your chest to that point in space, or I want you to move your head to this point in space. Mm -hmm. That's an external cue. And when you give someone a cue like that, then they just go right to it. They just Mm -hmm. move to it. And they're not fixating on which muscles are working. They're actually just concerning themselves where it is they're going. And the rest of it takes care of itself. And it's actually not only are people more successful at doing it that way, there's less error in the movement and also there's less muscle activity. And here's the really interesting thing about that, because you could argue, well, if there's less muscle activity, you know, we're not going to do as well. We're not going to perform as well because we need more muscle activity to perform better. But in the research on this, this is Gabrielle Wolf's research. She's shown that by giving people external cues in an activity such as a vertical jump, people with the external cue jump higher than people with an internal cue. But those people who jumped higher actually had lower levels of muscle activity. Mm. So we, we run into a little bit of trouble when we use things like EMG Mm -hmm. and when people interpret EMG research, because the initial assumption that everybody makes is that more is better. And what I've said for years is that more is not better, better is better, and there are many reasons why you 'll see a muscle 's activity levels increase, one for example is if that muscle is working against significant antagonist activity,
0: mm-hmm. so in
1: other words if i'm if i 'm doing something as simple as a biceps curl um, or an elbow flexion exercise, and the goal mm-hmm. is to move my hand toward my shoulder if my triceps is turning on significantly trying to extend my elbow then my biceps has to work even harder to move it in the direction that i want because it's working against a counter resistance so the greater the counter resistance the more activity i have to see in the muscle that i'm measuring and so you're going to see that but that doesn't mean the movement was better Mm-hmm. It means that it had to overcome more resistance in order to move in the first place, and that's why you see a higher EMG level. And that's not necessarily meaning you have a better condition. Mhm.
0: Yeah. That. That's yeah. Okay. I mean that. I guess, that so that so that I get right. the
1: story. Yeah. The, the the story that 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 I'm getting at there, the moral of the story. Is it gets back to your initial comment about education that we have in our industry? Yep. And in many cases, you'll see um, educators using EMG as as a measuring device in their presentation to people. Like, here's the EMG data, and here's what we see. And this is what you should know. And this is what we want you to do, because this is what this EMG tells you. And the problem there is the audience, and in many cases, the presenters don't understand EMG well enough to recognize the methodological implications of what was done and why you can't necessarily take that information at face value. And so you accept it as fact when you really should be looking at it and saying, well, how is this done? What was the original intent? And can I really infer what's being implied? Because there are so many variables that can confound these results. People just don't understand that. And so mm-hmm. they end up just taking it at face value and misinterpreting the thing. And that's kind of where we are with education.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the yeah the EMG... Um until I got my hands on it, um, I, I was always, always left more confused than, than, I mean, and even getting my hands on it and looking at four different quote unquote core exercises and, um, you know, talking through antagonist and, you know, what, what you are just kind of saying and, uh, you know, I still left, you know, pretty unsatisfied. I wasn't, I, I had a, I had a fun experience, but, you know, I don't know what my clients got out of it. Um, <laughs> so um, if we were um, able to set up a, you know, a, a virtual experience for personal trainers to, um, I guess, learn to think effectively about the the core um would we you know would do you think we'd be in a lab or do we would we be talking about um what i don't know different research settings or would we be moving and kind of challenging how we move like how would you uh set up a, a learning experience for i don't know people to I don't have a better idea of what's going on instead of just following, um, I don't know, list and recipes and thinking so uh, binary about, you know, f- flexion extension. Um, it, it matters this much, you know, when it really it sounds like it doesn't matter that much.
1: Um, it's a good question. I think, What I always try to do with trainers when I'm working with them, and and I guess by extension, you can go right to the client, Mm -hmm. is to create first an actual experience and have trainers performing different things and thinking about what happened. So I'm not dictating a thought process. (laughs) I'm simply creating an exercise and experience and saying, here, do this, experience this, and now let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then after we talk about it, then I present the background data. Mm-hmm. So I try not to start with the evidence
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: because, one – there, there are different outcomes that can occur from that. One is if you're predisposed to thinking differently from what that evidence is, then you're going to argue all the way through and you're going to try to find a way through the experience that I'm asking you to have. You're going to try to find a way to argue it and to find support for your point of view. So, that's one thing. The other way is you just accept what I told you as fact, given the evidence, and now you stop thinking for yourself entirely because you're just going to accept it, which is what happens a lot in our industry. You know, we go to all these workshops, and you have all of these evangelists, really smart evangelists up there that are telling you what to think and everybody says oh they're smarter than i am and they're really dynamic and cool and the whole industry is thinking this way so okay i got it i'm going to do it too at that point you've completely stopped thinking independently as well Mm. so either you're going to become recalcitrant and fight it or you're just going to accept it neither one of those things is an outcome that i'm looking for i'm looking for people to experience something think about it challenge their own assumptions about it, challenge the other assumptions about it. And then after doing that, we can then look at data and say, okay, what do these data say? And how do they relate to what you just experienced? Mm. And, and that's typically what I do in any educational setting, not just in a virtual setting, but it's easy to do in a virtual environment as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a one-day certification, I don't think. Um, it sounds like <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, no. It actually requires some effort and education, and you know, people need people need to understand the basic sciences. It's interesting, is you know, I look at LinkedIn every day, and I'm just seeing what people are putting out there, and all these physical therapists that are posting content right here's we're going to look take an in depth look at the shoulder and how it's reacting to these conditions and looking at disability and how to correct that and I'm thinking it's really cool stuff i mean it's it's really high end sophisticated thinking but the people that you're talking to don't understand the basic structure of the shoulder in the first place and they don't understand the the way that the the scapulohumeral complexes working together when we're doing an overhead throw. I mean, they don't understand the basics of it. And here we are getting into very sophisticated, corrective rehabilitative exercise techniques. I'm like, wait, save that for rehab. Like, go work with your patients and do that I And mean, because you're really good at it and you know what you're talking about. But mm. to expect people to really understand the the basic science that underlies that before they actually get into practicing those things mm-hmm. you know you're making a big leap of faith and we as educators in our industry we don't have enough basic science we mm-hmm. we jump right to the solutions and forget that when you're a physical therapist you go through years of academic and practical training and then licensure before you were able to go out and do that, and then we're just taking all of that and saying, oh, look, you can do it too. You just have to follow my recipe. Mm-hmm. And it's it's dangerous. It really is.
0: I really enjoyed this conversation, but I'd love to wrap it up. Um, is there anything you think we missed if we could um, tie up a conversation on you know, why we shouldn't be so fixated about the core or, you know, any other uh, hot word in the fitness industry?
1: Um, and we, we've taken a pretty circuitous route to get back to the core, but mm-hmm. I, think, I think that the word is fixated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other word that I pay attention to that, you know, I think we need to be careful about is dogma. Mm -hmm. And I don't think being fixated on anything is necessarily good unless there's a specific reason to be fixated on that, right? So, you know, if somebody's dealing with a very specific weakness or limitation that has either been diagnosed or is easy to measure, I mean, look, if you're working with someone in a strength capacity and you're – developing a program for their legs, you may want to see what the bilateral differences are in leg strength. Right? Mm-hmm. So you can come up with a fairly simple measure of that. And if you see a significant difference, and when I say significant, I mean greater than 10% difference side to side because we're all asymmetrical. And that's another thing where I, when I say like fixation is a is a problem for us. We're very fixated on making people perfectly symmetrical. Right? You're if if you're not symmetrical, then you're dysfunctional, and and that's an absurd position to take. Humans are not perfectly symmetrical. Humans are by our very nature asymmetrical beings. The question isn't whether we should be. The question is how much is tolerable, and For leg strength and function, you know, I look at 10%. So anything within 10% is fine. If your right leg's 10% stronger than your left, it's okay. It's when it gets to 12%, 15%. Now we start to think, okay, we need to catch up a little bit. It doesn't mean that somebody's at risk of injury. I don't predict injuries. No, I've said before, you don't know someone's going to get injured until they do. So... Mm-hmm. But I would like to see a, a strength symmetry balance of, you know, somewhere within 10%. So mm-hmm. being able to measure things on a simplistic level like that, accepting the fact that people are not perfectly symmetrical, we don't move in a perfect way. There's no such thing as perfect motion. Mm-hmm. People come up in de- They'll develop movement solutions that nobody expects. We are moving problem solvers and people have different ways of solving those movement problems. And as long as they achieve the goal, that's reasonable, unless there's a clear and obvious uh, movement pattern or loading or some condition that you can clearly see that says, hmm, we should fix that because it's inefficient or it's risky. Um, but fixation is a bad thing. And I think we need to be able to look at things from a variety of perspectives and not just jump on the bandwagon and whether it's core strength or anything else. If we see that there's this populism, there's this popular thinking around something, there could be value to that. I'm not suggesting that it's completely bad, but we should also be asking the question, is there another point of view here? Does anyone look at this differently? Is there a contrary position on this? And let me try to understand what that is, because the more perspective we can gain around anything, the the more ways that we can look at things, the better off we're gonna be. Because then we can get rid of the recipes and formulas and start thinking independently. And that's really what we need to do.
0: Mm. I um so appreciate uh just this whole conversation, and is there anything you'd want to share that um, is exciting going on in your uh, professional career? Um.
1: Well, I think all of us are facing uncertain times and also mm-hmm. exciting times, and I think what we all need to do, especially now, is not so much get caught up in sort of the the, the challenges and the misery of, you know, being in a, in this COVID-19 environment, but look for opportunities to change and, you know, look for how we can make an impact on people in the future and just stay positive and and communicate. I think those are things that as challenging as things are, they're also exciting at the same time. And, um, you know, I'll just leave it at that.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with us this long, and I truly hope you got so much out of that in being able to free your mind of the dogma and the gimmicks that we've been sold as trainers, as movers, as teachers, as coaches. And that you are encouraged to be an independent thinker. A special thanks to Dr. Paul Juris and Gregory Gordon who facilitated this conversation. And I would love to receive your reviews on iTunes for Think Fit Be Fit podcast. Please subscribe. And share these episodes with your loved ones, your students, your athletes, your fellow trainers. And if you'd like to keep in touch with me, please sign up for the newsletter at impactyourfitness.net/slash newsletter. You can also support the show by checking out Ruby, which is a high-performance drink of fruits and veggies and nothing else. They come in four blends with no added sugar, no preservatives, no fillers, and all the fiber of the fruit and vegetables. They are pretty tasty. Um, truly, they speak for themselves. I think there's, you know, no arguments about these things because they taste good, they have all the fiber, and, um, you know, there's no crap in them. It's just wonderful, just freeze-dried fruits and vegetables. I love the immune and skin boost blend. I also like the focus blend. So your first order comes with a free shaker bottle and all you have to do is purchase at impactyourfitness.thrivelife.com ruby or check the show notes for all the links. I look forward to seeing you on Instagram or on the newsletter. Have a wonderful week.